in a world full of straight people. Aren't you glad there's Wow Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to Wow Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. I'm Matt McConkie. I'm a writer, actor, and podcaster, but my main thing is that I'm a gay man who loves sex in the city. I know, did you ever hear of such a thing? And with my overwhelming excitement for season two of And Just Like That, I couldn't help but wonder, should I do a podcast about this? The answer, of course, is no. But my dream was to sit down with my very own Mirandas and Charlottes and Che Diaz's to unpack the stories and themes of the show. My dream was to start a conversation, a community, a movement to bring back Samantha. And just like Matt, my dream came true. Welcome to episode four of And Just Like Matt, where I will be covering, amongst other things, episode four of And Just Like That with a very special guest. Okay, this bio is gonna blow your hair back, and this is an abbreviated version, by the way. So, Susan Faleshill was born in Rome and raised in New York City, and her mother was a Broadway actress whose best friend was Diane Carroll. And Susan graduated from Harvard with honors. Her TV career started on The Cosby Show, and then she became showrunner of A Different World and has been working as a TV writer and producer ever since, while also writing an award-winning memoir and novels and pieces for Vogue and Essence and Glamour and Ebony, while also being on the international best dress list. No big deal. Vanity Fair called her a groundbreaking fashion icon because... She's this real-life Park Avenue mom, a, a Manhattan philanthropist, socialite, advocate of the arts type. Bottom line is, she's such a, a glamorous New Yorker that the Sex and the City universe would frankly be incomplete without her. So thankfully, she joined And Just Like That in Season 2 as a writer and consulting producer. And I was so excited to meet her and hear how her extraordinary life has been infused into the show and just like Matt, Susan Faleshill is here. Before we talk about the show, I want to talk about you, Susan, because the life that you've lived, you know, you could easily be a, a Sex in the City or in a Just Like That <laughs> character. And listeners have already heard your, you know, long list of credits and accomplishments and accolades. But I thought maybe a good place to start would be your mother, the uh, the late singer-actress-dancer Josephine Premise. You wrote a memoir called Always Wear Joy about your relationship with her. Mm -hmm. So what, what did you learn by being her daughter? So uh, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on the show. And I do want to confirm that I'm actually old enough to be an end just like that character. <laughs> <laughs> As am I. And hopefully we're not aging, we're maturing and seasoning like fine wine. Absolutely. So uh, what did I learn from my mother? My mother was one of the most courageous and creative people I'll ever have the joy of meeting. And she really loved humanity and believed in humanity. And so she taught me to walk through the world with confidence in man's capacity for grace, believing that 
no one who is another human being is a stranger or is foreign. All that is human is, is recognizable to us. And that every day was an opportunity to create beauty and to create love and to create connection in the world. And I know that must sound incredibly hokey, uh, but she really practiced that. And she was born in 1926, which was certainly not an easy time to be an extremely dark skinned child of a Haitian political refugee. And mm. as a woman and as a black woman, she was certainly absolutely a second class citizen de facto in the North de jure in the South. And she never let current reality limit her vision of what she could be or what the world could be. And she believed in the possibility of a world she didn't uh, live to see, for example, the election of the first black president and, and frankly, so much of what's going on to bring it back to television and the entertainment industry. There've been so many advances since she passed away in 2001 that I know she's, she's cheering on from her, her cocktail lounge <laughs> in mm. the sky. So uh, I think that's where they tend up. Lo- love and optimism. <laughs> Those are the two big things. And do you see her in you now that you are a mother yourself? Uh, so I do try to bring the kind of humor to my role as a mother that she, I mean, she made me laugh every day. Uh, I do try to bring that sense of wonder that the world we have to look every single day for the beauty all around us in other people in our surroundings and it doesn't mean you're in a the most incredible home or neighborhood but she would make me we lived on the west side when i was growing up and uh that was it was kind of a mixed bag of a neighborhood but she would make me look up at the buildings she would make me look at a beautiful piece of fruit uh and so i very much tried to do that uh, raising my daughter in in new york and my mother was also incredibly multicultural uh, she spoke several languages so i've passed that on to my daughter i speak only french to her and she raised me with the theaters and concert halls and uh the opera house as my cathedrals and I've, I've definitely passed that on and I have instilled in her a love of putting yourself together right. <laughs> we accessorize <laughs> perfume is a necessity <laughs> and pu- pull your outfits together it's a way of beautifying America so but but more than anything I've tried to raise my daughter with a sense of of purpose of joy in work of compassion and with the sense that my mother gave me that you are a citizen of the world, you celebrate all the cultures which you represent every single day, but you are not tied down by a single identity and the world is yours. You know, I wouldn't presume to act as if I know you, but just in our conversations previously, it strikes me that, you know, the circles you travel in, the world that you're living, I mean, it's all so foreign to me, but that... I guess what I'm trying to say is you could get away with being a snob and you very much feel like you are not. Do you attribute that to your mother? There's no question because yeah. my mother, there's the wonderful line from from that colonialist Rudyard Kipling's poem, If if You Can Walk With Kings Nor Lose the Common Touch. And my mother could hold her own with royalty and she met royalty as a performer and, and her travels, uh, but she treated 
every single person with incredible dignity and every single vendor in our neighborhood loved her. Frankly, there were transgender prostitutes in our neighborhood in the in the 70s. And they would all say, oh, Miss Premise, Miss Premise, because she, she would say, hello, ladies, how are you tonight? She was so kind to absolutely everybody and also always taught me everybody's your equal and you're the equal of everybody. I remember once we were at the supermarket and the lady at the cash, uh, the cashier was this very tall, quite beautiful, um, light-skinned black woman. And when we left the supermarket, she said to me, that lady used to be a cotton club dancer. And I never forgot that because what she was telling me without beating me over the head with it was someone's station in life, quote unquote, or job is no indicator of what's inside of them or what dreams they had or what they accomplished. Uh, and certainly as a black performer, you know, she had friends who went through a lot of ups and downs. She herself did. So humility, I guess, <laughs> wasn't her favorite yeah. word, but there was this sense of, guess what? We all came from nothing. We are all going to go back to nothing and let us try to enjoy each other on the journey. So let's talk about your journey in work because yeah. your IMDb page is pretty staggering. Your TV career started on the Cosby show. Yes. So when it comes to being at the center of, you know, the TV zeitgeist, this is definitely not your first time at the rodeo, right. but given everything that's happened with Cosby in recent years, how are you looking back on the legacy of the show and your time there? Of course, I want to begin by acknowledging the tragedy of what happened with Mr. Cosby and these women. Obviously, one's heart goes out to everyone concerned and primarily to the victims. It's, it's an awful situation. I will say for my part that, and this is no reflection on Mr. Cosby's guilt or innocence. It is not the side of him that I saw. And uh, he's, like many other artists, a very complicated person, obviously. And uh, as life teaches us, two things can be true at once. And the world is full of admirable artists, incredible artists whose work we cherish to this day. Picasso, <laughs> many others come to mind. And yet, we have to also acknowledge the misogyny or frankly, in some cases, the criminal behavior that also was part of the person's character. I will say that in terms of what Mr. Cosby and that show accomplished for people of color in this country, I just don't think you can take that away. And though obviously his personal legacy is tarnished forevermore, the legacy of the show is one that stands. I remember talking to a friend's mother, a white friend, and she managed a Talbot's. You know, Talbot's is very um, sort of <laughs> conservative suburban yes. clothing store, um, not known for catering to people of color back in the day. <laughs> and uh, she worked at one in a suburb of Boston. And as we know, Boston and its suburbs historically, let's look back at the busing situation, not exactly a hotbed at the time in the 80s of acceptance and openness. And she said to me, Susan, I used to have to train my saleswomen not to treat every black woman who walked in like a shoplifter because they would just automatically either try to get them to leave the store or follow them around like security. And 
one year of the Cosby show, all of her white saleswomen were running up to the black woman who walked in. Why? Because they suddenly thought, this is Claire Huxtable. <laughs> yeah. She's got a job. She's got disposable income and she's going to make my day for me. So that kind of, uh, there's a professor called uh, Banerjee who talks about unconscious bias. And literally it's images like the ones we saw uh, on the Cosby show that completely transform people's mindset. So it can't be overstated aside from the fact that from the standpoint of comedy, it was gold. Uh, and it was never, ever, ever, this was very interesting, the comedy of cruelty. Mr. Cosby absolutely would never allow people to get a laugh out of making fun of anybody else. And he also was very insistent when we had, say, a Latinx person on, that we find out where exactly that person was from, and then we write to that. So if we hired a Mexican, we would say they were Mexican. We would not suddenly try to say they were Cuban. And that kind of respect for people of other ethnicities did not exist. There's so many things that that show brought into being that didn't exist. So I think that legacy should stand. And personally, I remain grateful to Mr. Cosby to this day because he absolutely paved the way for my career. So, yeah, we're having this conversation, you know, a week after the Supreme Court effectively banned affirmative action and the Cosby family represented a certain degree of both wealth and education. And now there's this idea that, you know, college admissions policies can essentially work around the ban by just shifting the focus to economic diversity. But of course, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, it's completely complicated. There was just a piece today in the Times about uh, social class is about more than color. And while the Black bourgeoisie is still the minority of people of color, it is strong and vibrant. And so it is, it's a lot more complicated than that. But I think that the absence of the black bourgeoisie on television was not an accident. When we look back at the history of television, when we look back at the history of black imagery, you know, going back to minstrelsy and which became a huge art form after reconstruction and during Jim Crow, every black person accomplishment, whether they were meant to be a politician or a banker, they were presented in very caricatural ways by way of saying these are not these people are not fully human and these are frankly in their perception apes pretending to be able to do these things i mean let's just look at birth of a nation <laughs> exhibit a so it's not an accident that those images until julia was done where diane carroll played a nurse we we had not seen a black woman who was in a maid's uniform because it was a way of maintaining a hierarchy. So as much as people said, oh, this is a white family in brown face. No, it wasn't. To many people, that was a very recognizable black family, the Huxtables, both in terms of the way they interacted and the schools that they'd been to and the ways in which they disciplined their children. It was all very resonant for so many people who've been invisible and not on television. And it was revolutionary, actually, because it was saying... Black people also have a seat at the table. And when I was on the show, I did a radio interview with one of the writers, and it was on a Black radio station, and a woman called in, a Black woman, she said, this family isn't really Black, they're white. And I said, 
ma'am, why aren't they, why aren't they black? And she said, cause they're rich. And I thought right there is the triumph of <laughs> racist brainwashing because to equate blackness with poverty and to say you cannot remain authentically black while participating like everyone else in the capitalist system, that's a very dangerous notion. So for all those reasons, it's, it's very important to show black people who are outliers. I mean, when people would say, well, these people aren't representative, I'd say, well, what about Murphy Brown? I loved that show, but what percentage of the white female population did this size six, <laughs> seven to eight figure a year earning superstar woman represent? So the Huxtables were far more representative than Murphy Brown and why black people need to see those who have defied all the restrictions. Which brings us to a different world, which you became the showrunner of. You mentioned Diane Carroll. She was your mother's best friend and a huge part of your life. If you'll indulge me, I'd love to hear about you bringing Diane Carroll onto the show. It was season two or three. I can't remember which one. I think it was three. We were we wanted to bring in Whitley's mother because Whitley was such a an iconic character. We wanted to see who, who spawned her and also to humanize Whitley, <laughs> who created mm. this... <laughs> insufferable <laughs> little southern belt and we all decided diane carroll was was the one the sine qua non and so i was dispatched since I, she's based she was basically my second mother to uh go and and bring her back alive as it were so i i drove my little acura integra up <laughs> up Doheny Road to her house uh, in Beverly Hills and uh, I basically said to her, you have to come and do this show. And she had mixed feelings because she wasn't always in love with doing television because she didn't feel it was a great acting opportunity always. Uh, but she was so happy when she did join us because she couldn't believe, she had never been on a set before that was run helmed by two black women debbie allen who was executive producer and director me executive producer head writer <laughs> all of the young stars who were leading their lives and thriving and making great livings uh, a very very mixed um crew and so at one point she gathered the whole cast together and she said to them she bought a big sheer boom of champagne and she said I want you to understand what it is that you are experiencing because when I drove on to the Fox lot to do Julia, I was the only one. And here you are, you own this lot. It's yours. And you walk through it as though it were your home and it is your home. And to see that in her lifetime really was very redemptive. Well, they say time waits for no one and neither should payday. To get your money moving in the direction of your dreams, get Earn In. Earn In is the app that's helping millions of Americans feel self-sufficient without falling into debt traps. 
Earnin empowers you to live life to the fullest by providing up to $100 a day of your pay within minutes of earning it, no mandatory fees and no credit check. You just watch your earnings tick up as you work, access up to $750 per pay period. It's easy and free to get started. You just add your bank and employment info, they'll verify your paycheck. It's designed to support you in the short term and long term. So download Earnin today. That's e a r n i n in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, just type in "Just Like Matt" under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. That's "Just Like Matt" under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. You know, this show is all about honest conversations where we we really face our fears. And for some of us, it's a fear of aging. For some of us, it's a fear of carbs. And hey, I get it. The fear is real. But that is why I'm so excited to tell you about our sponsor, Hero Bread. Hero Bread has remade many of your favorite foods, but in these fluffy, delicious versions that include no net carbs, zero grams sugar, and fewer calories, plus protein, and fiber. Two of my favorite things. I've always said, if I ever have twin children, their names are going to be protein and fiber. What did I have for lunch today? A tuna sandwich on their seeded bread. It was the perfect texture. It toasts up just like a dream. My God, was it good. And right now, if you go to hero.co and use code like Matt, you will get 10% off your first order. So don't give up on being a breadhead because Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co, use code LikeMat at checkout. That's LikeMat at H-E-R-O.co. That's such a beautiful story. Thank you. So we have to talk about fashion because okay. obviously it's a big part <laughs> of, uh, of, of, and just like that, also a big part of your life. Yes, sir. Um, what for you is the most, if you had to choose, the most treasured, iconic piece in your wardrobe? Oh, wow. That's a pretty great question. Wow. Okay. Um, I'd have to say a uh, a 1920s, my mother collected a lot of vintage clothing, and I have a 1920s flapper dress that's hand-beaded, in this incredible pattern. So I think it'd have to be that because it's tied to her. It's representative of her. It's completely unique and irreplaceable. So if everything were on fire and I had to grab something, I think I'd grab that. <laughs> yeah. What was your relationship to the original Sex in the City? The original Sex in the City came out the year that I got married, I think, or the year before uh, I got married or the year or whatever. I got married in 1997. I think it started in 1998. So basically I was out of that war. You, mm. <laughs> um, I, uh, of course I enjoyed the show, but uh, I enjoyed to me what I loved most about it was the social satire. I'm a big fan of uh, Charles Dickens and Tom Wolfe. And what I always love is their biting social commentary and they had such biting social commentary which i loved and the portrait of new york felt um other than the lack of diversity 
incredibly accurate. And of course, I loved the fashion. I didn't, I loved, of course, the the romance with Big. However, I didn't live and breathe it the way a lot of single women did just because I had been through so many <laughs> bad dating experiences <laughs> living in Los Angeles. And also I, I lived under the delusion that I would have had a better time dating in New York. So I didn't want to shatter that, that fantasy. So I didn't, I didn't uh, relate to the characters in the way that uh, some people I know did. How did you meet your husband, by the way? I met my husband through a mutual friend who was also his first cousin. And um, so it was kind of a blind date situation, if you will. Kismet. <laughs> and you mentioned the lack of diversity on the show. And so much has already been said you know, about that and, and about the way that And Just Like That has deliberately expanded its cast to reflect the real New York City or you know, a, yeah. a very fabulous version of, right. of of the real New York City. And I know you joined the show in season two, but watching season one before you entered this world, how did you feel about these new characters as a viewer? Of course, I was extraordinarily excited about season one. And I must preface all this by saying first that Michael Patrick King is a friend and had asked me to join and I couldn't. I want to applaud the the entire team which included two people who are no longer there kelly goff and reshna freshbaum because they really had to lay the foundations so i felt like the characters were really interesting uh the character played by sarita chudri i think is genius sophisticated interesting and so utterly fresh and also represents a very real demographic that we simply don't see enough of uh, on television, which is the children of the South Asian diaspora. And, uh, and then, of course, these two very different African-American women, both gorgeous, both glamorous, uh, but living very different lives. And how often does one get to see that? And the fact that they were being pretty seamlessly included in this um, in this ensemble cast to me was was admirable. I also think they had an enormous burden last uh, last time around because the the show was being done in the midst of the pandemic and uh, in the midst of the racial reckoning. So there was the atoning for <laughs> the, yeah. the terminal whiteness of the original brilliant series. And then there was the necessary hot tip and response to people are very quick to forget how sensitive everything was. And so that one really had to acknowledge the differences and, and all of that. So I, I think it was a, a really climbing Mount Everest. And, and I, to my, for my money, they did make it to the summit. And we had the freedom this year of just taking a deep breath and letting these characters be human. They didn't have to be Sidney Poitier in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, a man who yeah. had never flatulated in his life. Uh, they could just be human and they were just established and part of the mix. And we could just have them be uh, serious in some moments and frivolous in others uh, and not constantly worry about reintroducing them every time. So. 
Um, yeah, I think that, you know, the, this knee-jerk reaction that we heard so much, which was that every, you know, every white color had a support friend of color or something yeah. along those lines, it was so short-sighted because, yes, we did meet the new characters through the established characters, as you kind of have to do when you are doing a reboot of sorts, but also... When you go back and watch season one, the new characters had were doing so much more than simply being like, um, you no. know, sounding boards. No, they were not. They were not just oh, the the peppy friend. Uh, Naya had her own. The the law professor had her played by the brilliant Karen Pittman had her own really rich and powerful journey uh, about did she want to be a mother and her infertility and what were her career goals and her marriage. Uh, and um, LTW was very much established as this presence in New York, uh, an an art collector. That art collection has become such a touchstone for us, and visually it plays such a fascinating role as, as, as another character in their house and as a counterpoint to things that are happening around it. So there was a lot uh, that was set and 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 frankly um uh Seema's immigrant family and those traditional values and and her life and we're gonna we we have already drawn from it and I suspect as time goes on if we're blessed with more seasons we'll draw from it even more because some of her fierce ambition really does come in response to being this immigrant kid from Queens so um not enough credit, I don't think, was given to that and to the work. And listen, everyone now has a bullhorn. <laughs> Everyone's yes. a critic. Back in the day, we'd say a letter came pouring in because back in the day, it took a lot of effort to let creators or the network know you weren't happy. You had to actually type up a letter and send it at snail mail. And now you can just go to your phone and, and just mouth off uh, and in some instances, I'd love to, under the cloak of cyber anonymity, I might add, I'd love to sometimes force some of these people to actually face the people that they're talking to and see if they'd say all the same things in, in that context. Uh, yes, I, I think it's safe to assume they <laughs> would maybe, not. Maybe they would, and that's okay too. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, the scene that encapsulates a lot of this for me is that scene toward the end of season one between Seema and Carrie when I already love Seema like so many of the gay guys did, frankly, because of the clothes and the smoking. She was just, you know, she was so fabulous. (laughs) Oh, God. And then we have this scene where, you know, she has accidentally broken this precious picture frame of Carrie's with a picture of Big. And and then Seema opens up about this scene that we saw earlier in that episode. Or right. maybe even the and it was, episode. In, it was in that episode, or I think it is in the same episode where the, they're at the bar together having yeah. cocktails. And she's saying, yeah. you know, you said to me, well, good for, good for you for still putting yourself out there. Like she was, you know, some old baggage. And, mm-hmm. and we see her vulnerability. And then if you rewatch the episode, which I have... <laughs> you rewatch it and you see her take in that comment and it's very subtle what she does. She doesn't dissolve into tears, but you see the pain and you see a physical reaction from her when uh, Carrie very blithely said, Oh, good for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. We're still trying to move the merchandise. <laughs> exactly. And and if this were as reductive as a story about characters of color who are essentially sidekicks, it would have gone no further than that. No, it would have it... just been an offhanded comment. But instead we get this second scene where Seema is like, that actually hurt my feelings. Yeah. And Carrie catches it and never would have caught it previously. And then... I'm suddenly invested in Seema in a whole new way. And I'm like, oh, now I can't wait for her to drive her own stories in season two. I care about her because I got to see that moment. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what one hopes for. And uh, listen, it's our job as writers to communicate. And it's the job of the actors to communicate. But it takes Rome isn't built in a day. If you think of your favorite iconic series, it took a moment to begin to identify with everybody and to really begin to understand who people are and were. So it's, it's a layering process. <laughs> exactly. Including, we'll, we'll get off this, I promise, but including season one of the original Sex in the City, you know, Miranda and Samantha and Charlotte were, they were sidekicks in a way. They were, yes. they were not the um, fully fleshed out characters that we've come no, to know. No, they were, you know, they were, you could describe them in sort of a sentence but you didn't know the depth of them. And so that's something that comes over time. And if you're blessed to have several seasons, then you can really, really delve um, and really hit the, the notes that people can latch onto and, and that resonate with people. And another character that we have very much latched onto is Lisa Todd Wexley, LTW, played by Nicole Ari Parker. And, you know, there there might be an inclination to call you the real life inspo for <laughs> LTW because you're a Park Avenue mom. You're on the international best dressed list, a very accomplished storyteller. But as you have pointed out, there are many LTWs. Yes, there are many LTWs. They don't all have her phenomenal apartment and extraordinary art collection <laughs> again thank you first season thank you kelly goff and uh, it must be said thelma golden who runs the studio museum in harlem and uh, raquel chevremont who was the art consultant um the original inspiration for the character was crystal mccrary and she is a trained lawyer and a filmmaker and she lives in a beautiful apartment on Central Park West, as it happens, uh, with a phenomenal art collection, wonderful, very successful husband who's in finance. But she's just a, a starting off point. And uh, it's, I was out with a group of ladies the other night, and they said, she's us. So whether someone is an upper middle class woman who's working as an attorney or a doctor, I think there are a lot of women who actually very, very much uh, connect with LTW because of her drive, because of the fact that she's in a two-career marriage to a successful African-American man, and because she's trying to navigate a world of extreme privilege with children who have a very different life experience than what she may have had. So I think that's kind of what we're getting at with her. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. As many of you know, I'm a big therapy person. I would say for me, the greatest benefit of therapy, if I can look back at all of the years that I have spent in therapy, has been changing the way that I speak to myself internally. 
you know, everybody always says like, yeah, you treat yourself the way that you would treat a friend. That's much easier said than done. So many of us are our own worst critics and it, it, it takes some, some, some help to untangle that. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try because it's entirely online. So it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So take a moment, visit betterhelp.com slash like Matt today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash like Matt. Let's talk about episode four. Mm-hmm. So Carrie is hobnobbing with Gloria Steinem, and she's receiving unsolicited dick pics. We've got <laughs> Charlotte helping Harry do Kegels, and LTW's having her anniversary party, and Miranda's having a failed threesome. There's a lot going on. Yes. And that- you started, of course, on, on classic sitcoms that followed a very traditional three-act structure, and this is obviously a very different beast. So what is it like breaking these stories where the rules seem to be so much looser? Michael Patrick King in our writer's room is always tearing his hair out because we have so many characters and we want to service them all. And we don't want certain characters to just be somebody else's emotional support. Right. Your name here, gay person, <laughs> millennial or person of color. Yes. So uh, the good news is we have more time than a traditional sitcom. We're not 21 minutes and 56 seconds. We're 45 full minutes. And um, the gesture that Michael Patrick King always makes is it's like he's braiding either Rapunzel's hair or <laughs> a big hollow loaf. So we we arced out all the characters for the season. And then each time we're kind of reworking what goes where. And we knew we wanted to do uh, for uh, LTW and Herbert a an anniversary story because it was the perfect moment to deal with their their clashing uh, career goals and also with their clashing families because it was uh, I I'm a I'm a an absolute fanatic for backstory <laughs> I always sit and think well who's someone's parents where did they grow up how do they grow up what do they like to eat what are their hobbies what marked them? What was the worst experience of their lives? What's their unfulfilled dream? What's their secret? And uh, so I really wanted to meet LTW's father, who is, uh, he's played by Billy D. Williams, the legend, uh, the the original, <laughs> after Sidney Poitier, the, and, and Harry Belafonte, the, the heartthrob of heartthrobs. For, for so many women, uh, and I, in my case, an old family friend. So really satisfying to to work with him again. And also I worked with him on A Different World. He was going to be part of uh, the seventh season that never took place. <laughs> mm. But he was in an episode with, with Leslie Uggams. Anyway, uh, and it was a wonderful opportunity to show different approaches, if you will, to uh, different paths to Black advancement, because you have... Herbert's mother, who is old guard, Southern aristocracy, funeral parlor heiress, uh, HBCU graduate, solidly upper middle class to wealthy, um, the black bourgeoisie on the march, um, and more proper than now, and uh, 
more uptight than Queen Victoria. And then you have this man who is this intellectual and radical and a successful uh, playwright who took all the money from his one big, very successful play from the 70s and poured it into uh, a local theater in Newark to help uh, the most disadvantaged kids be exposed to the arts. So it was just such a wonderful opportunity to show the different universes that Herbert and LTW hail from and how that has uh, influenced their marriages. And, and hopefully that's a very universal story. I believe we're all in a mixed marriage. I don't know how you feel, Matt, but because <laughs> yes, all of us, even if, you're, if, even if you're the same color as your spouse or the same religion, we all grow up in an ecosystem and, and a, 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 a completely different family and a completely way of doing and being. And so when we join forces with someone else, you do feel a little bit like somebody who's arrived in a foreign land <laughs> say what you believe what your family does what over small things and so that's really fun and it's it's kind of what can pull a marriage apart as well so uh we wanted that that chance to to show that uh and then of course with harry and charlotte again uh, i love everybody else uh, getting back to the original series, the, there's so many stories about getting to I do, and I like dealing with the, what the hell did I do after you've gotten married? <laughs> because the real story begins after the vows and the dress and the cake and all that. And so what I loved about the Harry and Charlotte story was the work that it takes to keep a longstanding marriage vibrant. And of course, sex is a big part of that. So even though it's a silly and funny and comedically rich story it also says a lot about what the the work of every day is in a marriage and what romance in a long standing marriage looks like uh and it looks like kegels sometimes <laughs> sometimes looks like kegels and meanwhile we've got Carrie struggling with the awkwardness of trying to ask Edith, who's played by Candace Bergen, to plug her book. And, mm -hmm. you know, we all have to make these delicate professional asks from time to time. But I'm curious for you, you know, with the career that you've led, what your experience looks like here and what your rule of thumb is when it comes to the etiquette around networking and making those uncomfortable asks. So I'm a bit like Carrie um, in that I have what my um, my attorney Lisa Davis calls uh, bourgeois reticence. You know, you're you're too polite. You think it's it's just so appalling and and self promoting to ask people to help you. And yet, when it comes to selling books, you you've really got to get out there. You have to be a huckster. So uh, I loved that all the dialogue uh, between Seema and and Carrie around, no, girl, you got to go hustle. You got to go push yourself. This is your chance. And of course, the Enid relationship is such a rich one to revisit because Carrie always walked on eggshells with Enid, who was the embodiment of that quintessential, perfect New York, chic, sophisticated, uh, editor of a fabulous glossy magazine so uh she's still carrie from 20 years ago <laughs> when she's confronted with her and it, it just was a delicious dance to to unpack what that what that would look like and what that would be um and it's it's very very real and of course now 
with so much coming at people, you really have to get, I mean, got to go do a TikTok dance to, to sell your book. So <laughs> she, she needed to get herself to that party with all those women. She's also a little thrown when Enid, who's in her 70s, implies that they're the same age. And aging <laughs> is obviously a, a, you know, a big theme of the show. And as you said, you're of a similar generation as our main characters. How did your own feelings about aging come into play in the writer's room? Well, I, I think we all share funny stories of those moments when we have the the pie in the face, uh, which is, you know, the big comedic trope of <laughs> you think everything's fine and then someone hits you in the face with a pie. And I it happened for me uh, when I made the mistake of going to D'Agostino's on a Tuesday and the lady said to me, the cashier, uh, you, uh, I gave you the senior discount, even though you forgot to ask, <laughs> you no. saved $4. <laughs> Oh, what? <laughs> and I said, wow, I guess it pays to look older than you are. I just turned 60. Don't I have another five years? And I was just like Carrie. I was intent on her not putting me in the system as a senior. And when I went back to the supermarket the next time, I saw a senior discount pop. But I was screaming, take me out, take me out, which, <laughs> you know, it seems very petty for a five-year difference. And hey, saving money is saving money, although I don't believe in committing fraud. So uh, I think we can all relate to no matter how great we feel about still being alive and how feminist we are, that we, we don't want people to rush us. So yes, it may be splitting hairs in it is whatever, 15 years older than Carrie, but that is half a generation at least. <laughs> so at least. no. And it also, I think one of the show things that the show has done this year is also examine our contradictions as women who came of age just in the wake of the feminist movement and are now in this brave new world of boss girl feminism and sex positive. We're, we're kind of this in-between generation and we come up against some of our own uh, our own prejudices around weight and around aging and, and all of that. So I, I think those less than admirable moments or or thoughts that Carrie might have or anyone else might have about aging are worthy of examination. My heart goes out to that cashier at D'Agostino, who's obviously <laughs> um, very vision impaired. Um, <laughs> In terms of what's next for you and and your work, obviously we all hope for a season three, but beyond that, are there other stories you're dying to tell? Uh, yes, I have several stories I'm dying to tell. I am a big uh, history wonk and there are a lot of historically based stories that I'd love to tell. I'd love to uh, adapt The Black Count by the brilliant Tom Reese, Pulitzer Prize winning book about the um, father of Edixalcha Juma, the author of The Three Musketeers and all those other iconic 19th century novels. And his father was the son of a black slave and of a white uh, French nobleman. And he became one of the greatest generals in Napoleon's army. So, um, it's stories like that. There are so many of them that I'd like to tell. And and my wheelhouse is also uh, anything to do with dysfunctional families. I have a few ideas around that. <laughs> I, I come from a fabulous but dysfunctional family, trying to rectify that in my own life. And um, 
uh, my my dream would be actually uh, to have my own production company where I do historically based pieces. So that's that's kind of on the wish list. And hearing you describe your mom, she's just such a rich, incredible character. I'm sure you've already thought about adapting your memoir. Yes, I have thought about adapting my memoir. I've, I've had the curse of being a bit ahead of my time. <laughs> so when the, the memoir came out 20 years ago, it, A, there were, not, there were not a lot of things being done with Black female leads. Uh, if you go back 20 years, that will surprise people. But the big progress has been in the last 10 years and uh it just it doesn't didn't resonate for people uh as it was sort of well how do we tell this so um anyway yes now uh i think there would be a space for that and her story is one that deserves to be told and it is somewhat epic and she lived through so many significant historic moments and and her marriage to my father which took place in 1958 the same year as the lovings uh, whose marriage led to the Supreme Court case that uh, finally uh, struck down the anti-miscegenation laws, making uh, mixed marriage illegal uh, in large swaths of our country. Uh, so they married the same year, 19, 1958. And uh, my parents' marriage wasn't actually legal all over the United States until I was seven years old. So uh, I, and, and as we're living in this moment of rolling back of, um, affirmative action and and rolling back of of uh, gay rights under the guise of religious liberty i think it's really important for people to understand how recent a lot of this history is people act like it's ancient but literally i was seven years old before my family and i could have gone and visited uh colonial williamsburg without getting arrested i was literally born a crime in a lot of the states of this country. So that's not to be forgotten. Uh, and I'm proud to be working on a show and just like that, which though it's a comedy, uh, really is a model of inclusivity. You have everything from a non-binary person <laughs> to uh, an Asian millennial married to a black woman to a wealthy black woman to a black academic to, as I said, the the daughter of a, the South Asian diaspora, and to sh to model what the world can look like, and that these people all function in harmony together, uh, is I think the the promise of what this country can be, and uh, and and an, a, a kind of tableau that we can't see often enough to remind people we're, we're all in this together. I also hope we could add to the wish list that seventh season of A Different World, because I sure <laughs> would like to see that. It was looking good. <laughs> I have the notes for it somewhere. So. All right, let's go. I want to see that. Um, I have to go work on my, my TikTok dance to promote this podcast. So I'll let you go, but... Susan Faleshill, it's such an honor. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Oh, and thank you for all you do and uh, for the good wishes. And for those who are on the fence about us, keep watching and uh, give us a chance. And Just Like Matt is a WOW podcast production created and hosted by me, Matt McConkie. Our executive producer is Renee Colbert. 
If you've got a burning question about a relationship or friendship problem, or really anything Sex in the City adjacent, just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at andjustlikematt at gmail.com, and I'll answer your question on the show with my very fancy guests. 